God provides for all of His creation in many different ways. Migration is a way certain animals survive and reproduce. Some of the most fascinating migratory creatures are birds and butterflies. But how do they know where they're going? Stay tuned. The incredible migration of the golden plover lasts about two days and averages 60 miles an hour. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. You may have seen or heard geese flying overhead in their seasonal journeys, or maybe you were blessed to see the swallows return to Capistrano for their springtime reunion. And many of us have spotted the beautiful monarch butterfly making its way to its wintry haven in the neo-volcanic mountains west of Mexico City. Indeed, these migratory creatures are a testimony of God's creation. Stay with us for the next 15 minutes as we learn about some incredible migrating birds and butterflies. ICR zoologist Frank Sherwin says when animals migrate, it's not just a haphazard event. Migration could be defined as the instinctive, recurring movement of a population of animals along uh, well-defined routes. We find that many animals have this ability, such as uh, whales and bats, hoof mammals, birds, and even insects, such as the amazing migration of the monarch butterfly. What are some reasons migration is necessary for monarchs and other butterflies to survive? These amazing animals undertake this extensive travel to avoid bad weather, to find food, or to reproduce. For example, some butterflies cannot survive a long, cold winter. The monarch butterfly spends its winter in roosting spots, being driven there by seasonal changes. Those monarchs that are west of the Rocky Mountains fly to small groves of trees along the California coast, while others, further east, fly south to forests in the Mexican mountains. Jules Poirier is author of the book, From Darkness to Light to Flight, Monarch, the Miracle Butterfly. He talks about east and west coast monarch butterflies. First, let's consider the east coast residents, which start their journey in Nova Scotia, Canada, and end up in central Mexico. They can travel about 30 miles an hour without any headwind. They finally can get all the way from uh, Nova Scotia, Canada all the way to uh, the Neovolcano Mountains west of Mexico City. There are 13 sites where 300 million of them go every year. And the monarch butterfly takes about 8 to 10 weeks to get there. He leaves Nova Scotia, Canada, and goes all the way. And so they only travel during the daytime. And at nighttime, they fold their wings up and usually rest their tree. When do they arrive at their destination in Mexico? Each monarch butterfly navigates by himself. They seem to have tendencies to all travel about the same time of year, between October and November. They arrive at the Neovolcanic Mountains from November, December, January, and February. In February and March, they leave the Neovolcanic Mountains. So what does the monarch butterfly do at its winter retreat? While they're in the Neovolcanic Mountains of Mexico, average 10,000 feet high, it gets real cold at night, and if it's colder than 10 degrees centigrade, why, they can't fly. So they wait till the morning, and in the morning when the sun comes up, it's usually warm enough to where they can fly. And also they may get a little bit of nectar or a little bit of water from some flowers that are nearby, and then they'll go back and rest on the trees. So they don't eat much during this time. It's sort of a semi hibernation, just stay in these trees for about four months. When spring comes, 
It's mating season and time to leave Mexico. But not all of the monarchs make it all the way back to Canada. The sex organs of the monarch butterf- different monarch butterflies that were in the neovolcanic mountains develop at different rates. Some of the sex organs are ready to go in the spring so the female meets with the male. And uh, then they just go a little bit further north, like maybe to the lower states like Florida, maybe Georgia. And uh, they uh, will then lay their eggs. And after they've laid their last egg, the moisture is gone from their bodies. About 30 days later, they, they will die. Then some of them develop the sex organs till later, so they don't mate until maybe uh, another month later, and then they go further north, and they do the same thing. And so sometimes it takes three or four or even five generations to get clear back to the region above the Great Lakes. Yet others are able to make the 3,000-mile journey home. Some of them, they develop their sex organs real late, and they don't get back to Nova Scotia maybe until June or July. And their wings are usually pretty battered and pretty beat up. So some of them actually make it all the way in one generation. Some it takes two generations, sometimes it takes three, and sometimes it takes four generations. Meanwhile, monarch butterflies on the West Coast don't have to travel as far. Now there's another migration with the Western population west of the Rocky Mountains. Some of those butterflies live in the valleys of the... Rocky Mountains, again during November and December, they start migrating usually toward the west coast. They usually like to go along the coast. And in California, we have about 200 different sites. The actual largest site is in uh, Camp Pendleton, where the Marine Corps base is. There's probably about 100 to 200,000 of the west coast monarchs go there every year. But how do these monarch butterflies know where to go? And how do they find their way? Well, part of the answer lies within their intricate eyes with 6,000 lenses and six nerve endings per eye. These six nerve endings are on each lens, and since there's 12,000 lenses, there's 72,000 of these nerves go to a little pinpoint brain the size of a pinhead, and these 72,000 uh, images now can see all the colors of the rainbow, including ultraviolet light and polarized light. They need to see polarized light because they navigate by looking at the sun. With the polarized lens that they have, they can see the direction of the sun even on a cloudy day, whereas we cannot. Since it's not known for sure how the monarch navigates, utilizing the sun may be just one of the ways it gets around. I believe they navigate by knowing the position of the sun and by the Earth's magnetic field. Inside the body of the monarch butterfly, there's a ferric oxide molecules, and these molecules are in the head and in the thoric region and the abdominal region, and they can line themselves up with the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, the Earth's magnetic compass north is different than the true north. And so if you can tell the difference between true north and magnetic north, you can tell whether you're east or west of the true north, and that way you can get your longitude. This is how I believe they get longitude. We can see how the incredible monarch butterfly is a testimony for creation.
Anybody who studies the details of the monarch butterfly, I think, would come to the conclusion that evolution couldn't possibly have evolved the monarch butterfly, that there had to be a creator that could design something that could make 12,000 lenses that could see all the colors of the rainbow, including ultraviolet light and polarized light. There isn't any logical sense to random chance that something as complicated could ever be made. We've heard some amazing facts about the monarch butterfly, but what about the many species of migrating birds? ICR Public Information Officer Cindy Carlson holds degrees in biology and zoology. She says that like the monarch, survival is the reason many birds migrate. Migration provides the long days of the, the north where insects are abundant for breeding pairs as they raise their young. And then as the days grow shorter and the food becomes more scarce, the birds turn south and go back to where the days are again long and there's sufficient food supply. So migrating birds travel because of food and not necessarily to escape the winter elements. Birds can take an incredible amount of cold. Their feathers fluff up and all that warm air is trapped under there and they have all those down feathers so they can stay warm. As a matter of fact, most insect-eating birds migrate, whereas seed-eaters don't necessarily have to. They'll stay where it's cold. For instance, the cardinal in our northern latitudes, they will stay because they can still find seeds on the trees. But an insect-eater can't find any insects during the winter, and so they have to go back south. But in the spring, when the northern latitudes begin to warm up, there are a great deal of insects that the birds can find. And migrating birds prepare in advance for their lengthy excursion. Now, before birds migrate, they have to fuel up, so they do the opposite of a diet. And, for instance, the golden plover, which is about 110 grams, normally gains half again its weight and becomes 180 grams. Okay, it still only weighs as much originally as five nickels, so it's just a very light bird anyway. But for its size, it can almost double its weight. In the case of the plover, the parents leave one month ahead of the babies. And then the babies gorge themselves on berries and insects, and one month later, they follow. The distance this little bird travels is absolutely remarkable. Frank Sherwin. A shorebird called the Golden Plover crosses 3,000 brutal non-stop miles of cold and treacherous ocean from Alaska to the tiny Hawaiian Islands, truly a needle in a haystack feat. Evolutionists must merely speculate that through time, chance, and lucky genetic mistakes, the birds were able to finally accomplish this. Man is able to do this amazing process using aircraft that must be in very good operating condition, as well as navigational equipment and a small army of navigators in Hawaii, Alaska, and of course the airplane. This ocean-crossing bird truly shows God's handiwork. The incredible migration of the golden plover between Hawaii and Alaska cannot be explained by random genetic mistakes and natural selection. We would view this rather as clear evidence for creation. God has placed this unique instinct into animals such as the golden plover so that they may traverse this route for thousands of years. The Creator has designed this amazing process to be triggered by the temperature and the length of day. This is called seasonal factors. Their migration flight lasts about two days, 
and averages 60 miles an hour. There's still so much we don't know about migrating birds. Cindy Carlson. There are many questions about migration when we think about this wonderful um, provision of God. Our questions are, how does the bird know how fat it needs to get before it leaves? And how does it know that it's going to be flying that long? And how does it know how fast to fly or where to fly? How does it orient itself to the earth and how does the bird navigate? So there are many questions that scientists are looking into. It would be hard to imagine a chance process such as evolution bringing this finely tuned system into being. As creationists, we believe God created all living things with what they needed to survive. And also the ability to adapt to various environmental conditions. And this is just what migration is. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.